between the time Dave prayed the prayer for the preacher this morning and our prayer time, and uh, now I had this deep word from the Lord, so I went to Jim and said, can I preach this morning? And he said, sure, go ahead. Not really. <laughs> Not really. Um, we, we changed the schedule, and uh, we forgot to tell Dave, so uh, that was on me. Fun morning. It's always great when we have an opportunity to welcome new members into the fellowship, isn't it? I'm going to get my prop bag out here this morning as we begin, and uh, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening all over this land, but that's not what I'm going to do, I'm not going to hammer all over. What I have in here is I have this piece of fruit, this is a big strawberry, and I have to confess, and I figured it would be easy for me to do this in church than it would be at home, since I stole this from my father-in-law's strawberry stash, okay? And I figure here at church, he couldn't blow up and get all angry because that would just look poorly on him. So, so I, just, I just went ahead and took it and thought I'd tell you about it here. So, sorry. <laughs> and then I have here this very hard piece of rock, this stone, okay? Now, I want to show you something about this piece of fruit. I have a screw here, and all I got to do is push it in like that, and it gets to right to the center of this strawberry. And now I have sticky fingers for the rest of my sermon. But uh, it gets to the heart of the strawberry immediately by pushing this in. Now, if I pull this screw out, I'll put the strawberry in here so we don't get strawberry juice. Hallett, you'll be doing, dealing with that one of these days up here. And I take this piece of stone, okay? Can't push that in. It doesn't go in. And a matter of fact, that's why I brought the hammer. So I can, you know, maybe take the hammer and pound on it a little bit. And it doesn't even really hurt. There's a few little pieces of dust coming off of it. But I, I, I cannot hammer this thing, this screw, into this stone, okay? Now, there's, there's, believe it or not, there is a method to this madness here this morning, okay? Because I wanted to give you a visual illustration of something that I've thought about to get to the middle of the fruit to get to the heart of the fruit, if you will, to penetrate it, it doesn't take much effort, okay? Why? Because it's soft. It's soft. However, to get to the middle of the rock to penetrate it does take quite a bit of effort. In fact, if I really wanted to uh, carry this through, I'd have to get a bigger nail or screw or something, or I'd have to get a hammer to pound the thing, and it would probably break it. It'd probably destroy it in some way, okay? Well, we've all heard the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Essentially, that means that something's not working or something is working well. You don't really need to do anything to improve it. It's already working well, so leave well enough alone. That's kind of the idea. Uh, I'll give you an example. I've complained when Barb took a recipe that I really liked, and she changed it up somehow trying to make something a little bit different. Now, my effort to to explain my complaint to Barb is like this, don't mess with perfection. You can't improve on perfect. Well, somehow that doesn't play well, real well with her because she was just trying something different. Didn't really earn any points with her when I did, said that. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at how Scripture speaks of brokenness, how in a very real way we see that God desires that we be broken before Him. So if it ain't broke, break it. That's kind of the theme for this morning. You know, I think back to September 11th, 2001, 
Most of us remember that. Each day or each year on that date, around that date, we remember that horrible day where thousands of Americans were killed in terrorist attack. We had jets crashing into buildings. We had buildings crumbling. We had thousands dead. It's been 16 years since that September 11th set our world in some ways on a new course. And that, way, that uh, day led to war in Afghanistan. It led later to war in Iraq. It led to the ongoing war on terrorists around the world that we're still in many different ways fighting today. It, it has led to uh, kind of an increased sense of insecurity when we travel, especially on airplanes. Uh, that day resulted in many things. But I'd like for a moment to consider something that that day could have accomplished, that day could have done, but it didn't. What such a day could have done is break us as a nation. It could have brought us to our collective knees. And I mean that in the best possible sense. Not in the sense at all that we're broken and defeated militarily. I'm not thinking of that. But it could have broken us in a good biblical sense, which we'll focus on this morning. And for a very short time, if you remember the days immediately following that terrorist attack, it seemed like that what might actually happen. Some of you may remember, and I still remember very vividly, the scene on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington just a day or two after September 11th. And there, congressmen and senators, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals alike, stood on those historic steps and they sang together, God bless America. Do you remember seeing that on that day? It was a really very moving moment, and it was a moment that gave me, and it probably gave many Christians, real hope for America. It gave me hope that perhaps the good that would come from this terrible event might just be an awakening to God. It might just be, according to His purposes, to His plan, to His will, a turning point for our culture. But in hindsight, we can look back now and see it's obvious today that it wasn't that. It didn't become that. We could have been broken as a nation, as a people on that day, but we weren't. We were just bent, and even that was just kind of temporary. The event threw us back on our heels as a nation for a short period of time, and maybe it did briefly humble us, and it certainly changed a lot of things, but very quickly, within a matter of weeks, our society was headed right back down the same wide road to spiritual destruction that we were on before this terrible event. So a very brief window of opportunity, a very short window of a sort of national softness of heart, if you will, thinking back to our opening illustration about the softness of the piece of fruit. It was a very brief time of vulnerability. It quickly gave way to a renewed hardness of heart to the things of God. And then it was back to business as usual, and here we are today. Now this was an event that could have that maybe should have broken us as a people, but it didn't. Without speculating, and I don't want to do that here this morning, without speculating about God's purpose and plan in all this, without speculating about whether or not this was a judgment of God in America in any way, we can see quite clearly in Scripture that God can and often does use hard things to break us. And He allows this because Here's a surprise, and I'm guessing you're not going to hear this in too many churches this morning. He wants us to be broken. He wants us to be broken before him so that when we are weak, he can be strong for us 
and in us. Now, uh, in our house church this week, we were, were in Hebrews chapter 10, and in the course of the conversation about studying that passage, Tammy Franklin had a, a great insight, and she looked up at one point and she said, you know what? God wants us to be dependent on him. He wants us to be dependent on him. And I thought that was a great insight, and that relates to what we're talking about here this morning. God wants our strength completely in him and not in ourselves. So we're going to look this morning about why that's true and why it's important to live lives of constant humility and brokenness before him. And it relates to our opening illustration. It has to do with softness of heart that God's Holy Spirit can penetrate just like that little pointed screw penetrated so easily that very soft strawberry versus a hardness of heart like the piece of rock that we would have had to literally destroy. Those are the two extremes here. We read in uh, Psalm 51, beginning with verse 16, a verse that really highlights what we're looking at this morning. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, this was David who wrote Psalm 51, and he was crying out in repentance, just for a little context of what was happening here, because he had not only just committed adultery with Bathsheba, but his sin of adultery had led to murder. So he wrote in this uh, psalm, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit in me. He even went so far as to ask God not to take his presence away from David, not to take his Holy Spirit away from him. And these verses we just read follow this plea to God, and these verses are a recognition by David that there is no adequate sacrificial atonement for his sin. David knew that there was no sacrifice he could bring. He couldn't bring bulls, he couldn't bring goats, he couldn't bring grain offering, nothing to appease God's wrath over his sin. And what's more, David seemed to recognize in this psalm that God wasn't looking for a sacrifice per se, at least in the way that his culture had come to think of sacrifice. In the Hebrew culture, you brought something. You brought something of value and While that is true, that that's what God wanted, what God really wanted was David's heart. What God wanted was David's heart. That was the only thing David really had to offer. Let's look at what this means. First, in verse 17, he writes, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Essentially, we could paraphrase this by saying, even as one translation says, the sacrifice you want, the sacrifice you want is a broken spirit. Essentially, uh, God, in a very real sense, wants us broken. Not because he's cruel. He doesn't want us broken because he's cruel. And he doesn't want us broken because he enjoys seeing us in pain, which we have to admit often, maybe always, accompanies brokenness. He wants us broken because unless we are broken, he cannot penetrate our natural hardness of heart and pride to speak to us, to get through to us. He can't also, if we're not broken, put us back together again in his image. Now, when I say cannot, I don't mean unable. God can do whatever he wants. 
But I mean that because he has given us the ability to make meaningful choices, he gives us the choice to accept his lordship in our lives, he gives us the ability to submit to his will of our, his will of our own free choice in that sense, okay? In that sense, unless we are broken, he can't reach us and he can't build what he wants to make of us. So again, to paraphrase the first part of verse 17, the only sacrifice that means anything to God is our brokenness, our humility, our softness of heart before him. It's important to understand what this brokenness is. Broken here in the original language means to burst, literal or figurative. It means to break down, break off, break in pieces, break up, brokenhearted. It means to destroy It means to shatter, smash, or crush. Pretty strong word. It's not like the broken heart on your screen there, like it just kind of splits in two. It means much more than that. And that's reiterated in an even stronger sense by the next part of this verse, which says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's the same word broken, repeated for emphasis, followed by the word contrite. Now, when we think about the word contrite, what we usually think of is that it means repentant or penitent in some way. And it does mean that. The dictionary definition of contrite or contrition is caused by or showing sincere remorse or filled with a sense of guilt and desire for atonement, penitent, like a contrite sinner. Yet the biblical meaning of this word is stronger still than our secular kind of dictionary understanding. The biblical meaning is to collapse physically or mentally, or to break. The Hebrew word means crushed. It means literally crushed to a powder. It means to beat to pieces, to break in pieces. So if I picked up this rock again and started hammering away at it, I wouldn't be done, it wouldn't be contrite. It wouldn't be contrite until I turned it into powder or sand. That's the dictionary, I'm sorry, that's the biblical understanding to beat to pieces, to break in pieces. Figuratively, it can mean to be humbled. That's something I think we can relate to more. We can understand what it means to be humbled. So combined with the previous verse, where broken means smashed or crushed, we get a stronger sense of what David means to be broken here. So in our typical understanding of this, when we think of broken, we think more in terms of something being cracked or chipped or even broken in two. But I'm here to tell you this is a lot stronger than that. Crushed, turned to powder, totally humbled, really totally destroyed. So think about this. When the Word says we're a new creation in Christ, that's what it says about those of us who are in Christ. It says we are a new creation in Him. And we relate that, that we are a new creation in Him, to this understanding that we're looking at now of what it means to be broken, to be contrite both which carry the meaning of being crushed or humbled. Doesn't that give a new idea to us about what it means to truly be a new creation in Christ? When something's crushed, think about this, when something's crushed to the point of being turned into powder or dust, it's often literally unrecognizable. If I crush this, you could have said, and I really turned it into powder, you say, did you get that sand off the beach? No, it was a rock I got out of the construction they're doing out here. The word says in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed 
in spirit. And Jesus applied the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61 to himself. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So God sees our brokenness even when we don't. And he sent the Lord Jesus. Why? So he can bind us up, so he can heal us, and he can rebuild us. You know the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, this morning's sermon is, if it ain't broke, break it, okay? Well, let me change that around just a little bit more. If we ain't broken and we don't accept the reality that we're broken, or in our pride we refuse to be broken, we cannot be fixed. We cannot be fixed. God wants us to be broken. He wants us to see and recognize that we are broken. That's humility. Why? So he can put us back together again in his image, in that new creation that he wants to make us in Christ. And so this clearly applies to unbelievers, but it also applies to all of us who are in Christ here this morning. Being broken in very specific areas of our lives is part of what God uses to make us, to mold us, to shape us into the image and likeness of Christ. I think it will help us understand what this brokenness is all about if we understand the opposite too, in other words, what it's not. The opposite of brokenness is pride. The opposite of brokenness is arrogance or self-sufficiency. Now, these are things we can understand because we see these things all around us in the world, don't we? If we're honest, we see them to some degree even in ourselves. We're broken inwardly when our sinful nature is broken. We're broken when our ungodliness is killed. We're broken when we're like the fruit in our opening illustration, that strawberry. It's soft. It's capable of being penetrated. In this case, for us, it's penetrated by the Word. We're broken when we in ourselves become nothing and recognize and even accept and embrace that and when Jesus has become everything to us. Unbroken is like King Uzziah in Second Chronicles. Now, like some of Israel's or Judah's kings, he started out okay. And Second Chronicles 26 uh, begins the chapter by telling us how Uzziah came to power as king, and it tells us that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. It tells us that he sought God. And it says in chapter 26, verse 5, as long as he sought God, God gave him success. But then in verse 15, it tells us that Uzziah's fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped. And then we see these words, until he became powerful. Those proved to be very ominous words, because reading forward in this passage from verse 16, it says, but after Uzziah became powerful. So he was doing good. He was doing right in the eyes of the Lord. After he became powerful, his pride, that's another way of saying his unbrokenness, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord, his God. We see this time and time again, folks, in the Word of God, in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. What's more, we can see it very clearly in our own world today. 
You may have heard the phrase, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It happens in business. It happens in governments. It happens, sadly so, in churches. Earthly power corrupts. Earthly power hardens hearts. And that hardness leads to either more or greater hardness, or it leads to a breaking that brings down that power to real brokenness. One of my modern-day heroes of the faith and one of my favorite authors is a man named Charles Coulson. Many of you know him. I believe he's a man that God used very powerfully as he wrote and commented on the state of our world and the state of the church before his death a few years ago. Charles Coulson once said this. He said, before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. He spoke these words from his own personal experience. And again, many of you know his story, but let me recount it for those of you who don't. He's a man who rose to a real position of political power in the administration in the early 70s of President Richard Nixon. There was a time when he was an aide to President Nixon, and as an aide, he was one of the most powerful men in the world. He had a lot of influence. He had a lot of power. And he would be the first to admit that he was pretty ruthless in the exercise of that power. It was said of him that Colson would run over his own grandmother for a political favor. And that'll give you an idea of where he was. And he admits that that was true of him. He would also admit that in those days, he fit our earlier definition of the opposite of brokenness. He was arrogant, he was proud, he was self-sufficient. As a result, he got caught up in the criminal and political mess that came to be known as Watergate in the early 1970s, and that brought down the Nixon presidency in shame in 1973. And it also ended up with Charles Colson going to prison for his part in the cover-up of that scheme. But not long before he went to prison, God broke Chuck Colson. He used the circumstances of his crime, and he used a prison sentence and a few well-placed friends to break him. Now, here was a man with an Ivy League education, brilliant man, an attorney, a potentially very wealthy man, and he was humbled by being sent to prison. And there in prison, shortly after he became a Christian, God used that time of brokenness in Chuck Colson to begin to rebuild this man into the new creation in Christ that he had become. He went on to start Prison Fellowship Ministries, a really worthwhile ministry born of Colson's own time in prison. And more than that, he became a very prolific author and commentator on the faith and culture. And today, his work still endures, and it really has a tremendous impact for the kingdom of God on Christians and non-Christians alike. But first, before any of these good things could have happened, Charles Colson had to be broken. He had to be humbled under the mighty hand of God before God could reshape him, before God could mold him into the kind of servant that he could really use. Before God could get through the hardness of heart, he had to break him. Before God could conform Chuck Colson to God's will, Chuck Colson had to be broken, willing to submit his will to the will of God. Now, these things that we noted about Charles Colson, a well-known believer, don't just apply to him. They don't just apply to the kind of power he had. They clearly apply to our own self-sufficiency, 
even in the more everyday things of our lives, our homes, our schools, our marriages, our workplaces. And David, the psalmist, is telling us just that in this psalm. When he writes, as he did in verse 17, the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit. He's referring to what God wants from him. He's referring to what God wants from Chuck Colson. He's referring to what God wants from each of us here this morning. That's because David recognized that God didn't want the ritual of sacrifice. He didn't want what for David had become only an outward act of obedience. He didn't want that ritual of sacrifice, which apart from a commitment to do God's will, has absolutely no value. God, uh, David knew that God wanted his crushed heart. He wanted his crushed heart. He wanted his broken spirit. He wanted the very center of David's being. God wanted David's heart. And that isn't just an emotional component that we often think of when we think of heart. We often think of heart as related to our emotions, and clearly it is. But to the Hebrews, the heart was the center not only of the affections or the emotions, but it was also the center of the will. It was also the center of the mind. The heart was all-encompassing. And we sometimes tend to create this false separation between heart and mind, such as when we say something like this. I've probably said this. I'm guessing some of you have too. He understood it in his head, but it didn't penetrate his heart. But this is a false separation, folks, and it doesn't square with the way that the Old Testament looks at the heart. To have a clean heart, as it says in Psalm 51, verse 10, is not only to have pure desires, not only to have pure emotions, but pure thoughts. And those thoughts originate in our minds. So for the most part, there's no significant difference in an Old Testament understanding between mind and heart. And of course, we see some subtle differences maybe between those two things, but they're so closely entwined that they're almost inseparable. And we need to remember that when we read this. So when we see that God wanted David's heart, we know that he wants our hearts too. And he knows that to really have our hearts, to really have our hearts, they must be broken. There's a pastor named Bob Rowe who said this, when we sin, we are playing God. When we know something is wrong and God has said it is wrong, but we do it anyway, we are choosing to sin. We are choosing to play God. We are putting our will in opposition to his will. But for salvation or restoration, God's terms are my will returned to him by my own choice. Those are the terms that he laid down, and they're inflexible. And so David sees that here. And that is why he offers himself. It's as if David were saying, I have nothing to offer you except exactly what you want. You don't want the blood of goats, you want me. So I offer you me. And David understands that, and David accepts that as he writes this psalm. We also can't properly understand this passage in Psalm 51 without taking a look at the sacrifice. And that's because of the way that David ends this verse. He says of the sacrifice of ourselves, he says of the sacrifice of our broken will, that God will not despise this, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but at first glance, that seems kind of an odd way to say this, kind of a negative way to say this. Why 
wouldn't, for example, David say something like what's said in other passages of Scripture, such as Psalm 34, 18, which we read just a moment ago. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Why didn't he say something more like Isaiah 57, 15? For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Why didn't David just say that God loves the broken in spirit? To say instead that God doesn't despise the broken seems like a negative way to put it to me. Well, I believe there's two ways that we can look at this section of this passage, and I think both have merit. One view is what I found in a couple of commentaries on this passage. And the gist of it is this. Men despise that which is broken, but God will not. In other words, the world doesn't appreciate brokenness. In fact, it's not too strong to put it this way. The world despises, looks down on brokenness. I think that's really true. But I believe that God doesn't despise it because of what Scripture tells us. Here's another take on the way David, as we believe, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this verse. There's a reason he said it the way he said it. To understand it, we have to read Amos chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, where God says, I hate, pretty strong word, and then he says, I despise, there we see that word again, I despise your religious feasts, I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Wow, pretty strong words from the Lord. But his anger was directed at the religious hypocrisy of their sacrifices. He knew their hearts. That's the thing. He knew their hearts. And he also saw that the rest of their lives, apart from the time they were bringing these sacrifices to him, were hypocritical. He saw them as hypocrites. They were saying one thing and they were doing another. He saw their religious worship as clearly inconsistent with the rest of their lives. If it were today, he might have said something like this, I hate the worship of those Sunday morning Christians. Quit singing those songs. I hate them. Those Christians who go to church on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week. I think that's a modern day paraphrase of what we read in Amos chapter 5. Life application commentary says this, God hates false worship by people who go through the motions out of pretense or for show. If we are living sinful lives and using religious ritual and traditions to make ourselves look good, God will despise our worship and will not accept what we offer. He wants sincere hearts, not the songs of hypocrites. I believe that's why God inspired David to write the psalm this way, using those words. It's because God despises the worship of those who are unbroken, those who by their thoughts, by their words, and by their deeds reveal that their will is not submitted to God. They reveal that their hearts are not broken before him. They reveal that they believe either God doesn't see their hearts at all or that they don't care, that their religion has no impact on the rest of their lives. So to say that God does not despise a broken and contrite heart is to compare it to what 
he does despise. An unbroken, uncrushed, proud, arrogant, self-sufficient heart. So here's what God wants, said in another way in Isaiah chapter 66 at the end of verse 2. It says, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The sacrifices of the arrogant, the sacrifices of the unbroken are only external outward compliance at best. Sometimes it might be compliance only for the purpose of being seen. Think about this, who you are when you're alone, when you're out of sight of your wife or your children or your parents or your Christian friends or your pastor or you're just in your own thoughts. Who you are in those moments is who you really are. But what God is saying here in this passage through Isaiah is this. If you live a life of brokenness, humility before me, my word is enough to get through to you. My word is enough. My word is living and active. And what else is the word? It's sharp, like that pointed screw that I stuck into the strawberry at the beginning. If you're broken, it can penetrate. The word can penetrate. For a humble broken, contrite heart, the word alone is enough to impact our whole life immediately. There's a trembling at the word of God all by itself. If we are broken before him, we don't need anything other than God's word to make us listen. We just need his voice in his word. If we're broken, we want his favor more than we want anything else. We want his will more than we want anything else, more than our own. And as with so many things in Scripture at first blush, when we think about brokenness, it appears to be a particularly unappealing thing, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that right? There's other things in Scripture we say, really? I mean, come on. Brokenness appears that way as well. But when we view it as we viewed it in Scripture, how Scripture outlines this for us today, we can really see a genuine joy in true, godly brokenness and humility. There's a joy in our will being instantly submitted to our loving God. Once we find freedom and joy in this, you know what? We will never want to live in our own self-sufficiency again. We'll never want to be in charge of our lives ourselves. We mess it up pretty good when we're in charge of our lives ourselves. Our hearts will be soft. They'll be pliable. We'll be teachable. Isn't that a good thing? They'll be the kinds of hearts that God not only doesn't despise, but the kinds of hearts that he can work with. They'll be like we read in Isaiah 57. It will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's be among the lowly. Let's be among the contrite. On the one hand, we can have broken and contrite hearts like that strawberry that I showed you earlier. On the other hand, we can have hard, strong-willed, unbroken hearts like the rock God only works with the broken, and he despises the other. It's really that simple. 
It's really that simple. But we can have soft hearts, folks. We can. We looked at this verse actually last week, Ezekiel 36, 26, which says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So we can have a heart of stone, hard and needs to be broken and crushed and hammered until it's powder, or we can have that strawberry that we just stick the pin into, you know, a pin. Not, you don't even need a screw to get, get into that. A biblical understanding of soft-hearted is this. Soft hearts listen to God. Soft hearts listen to God. Now, the world's understanding of soft-hearted is a little bit different. Soft-hearted to the world means emotionally responsive, responsive. But the biblical meaning of soft-hearted might include emotional responsiveness, but it's primarily a spiritually responsive heart. The only sacrifice, folks, the only sacrifice that God accepts, the only one that he wants is our will submitted to his will. Half-hearted or broken and soft-hearted. Do we want to be on the hard-hearted side, that piece of rock, or do we want to be like that soft strawberry, soft-hearted? Which one are you going to be this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't despise the brokenhearted. We thank you that you love the contrite. Lord, make us soft-hearted. Lord, make us contrite. Help us to be humble, Father. Help us to realize that without you we are nothing. But with you, Heavenly Father, we have grace, we have strength, we have the ability to follow you wholeheartedly. May our hearts be so soft, Father, that you can penetrate with your word in just a moment's notice. When we read something in your word that brings conviction, we respond immediately because our hearts are soft and willing to submit our will completely to your will, Heavenly Father. Father, do break our hearts. Do break our hearts. Do crush our hearts. And then we trust that you will remake us, Father. You will make us more and more each day into that new creation in Christ so we can follow you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.